0: You're listening to What Does the Word Say?, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're continuing our break from studying theology to look at some current topics of great importance from a Christian perspective— Dr. Spencer, at the end of our session last week, you said you wanted to examine how Marxist ideology has become so common in our society today.
1: And I'd like to begin by quoting the first line from Joshua Morovchik's book, Heaven on Earth, from which we have quoted frequently. He grew up in a staunchly socialist home, and he began his prologue, which is entitled Changing Faiths, by writing, Socialism was the faith in which I was raised.
0: That's a surprising statement to most people, I think, and a strange way to begin talking about how Marxist ideology has become so common today, but it agrees with the quote you gave last time from Whittaker Chambers, who called communism, quote, man's second oldest faith, the great alternative faith of mankind.
1: Yeah, Chambers made that point quite powerfully. And while this might at first blush seem like a strange way to begin talking about how Marxist ideology became so common, it actually makes a lot of sense. Because if socialism is, in fact, a religion, that says a lot about how important it is to those who truly believe it. By the way, the terms socialism and communism, while there are distinctions between them in Marxist theory, are often taken to be roughly synonymous. Chambers and Moravchik are speaking about the same ideology, which is Marxist, independent of the fact that they use different words. All right, but whether or not we can call socialism
0: a religion obviously depends on the definition of religion.
1: Oh, very true. And I freely admit that most people think of religion as being a belief in a supernatural being of some sort. That's clearly the most common definition. But I would argue that it is not the most useful definition. God himself told us in the first commandment, which we read in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, that, quote, you shall have no other gods before me, unquote. And he wasn't saying that there really are other gods. In Jeremiah 10, verse 10, we read that, quote, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king, unquote. In other words, God is the only true and living God, all other so-called gods are figments of men's imaginations. And those figments of men's imaginations don't necessarily have to be supernatural beings. Men can give their full allegiance to atheistic ideologies as well, in which case they function as a religion for all practical purposes. Okay, I'll grant
0: you that. And it is a relatively common expression to say that someone is quote-unquote religious about a particular activity— So the word certainly admits of a broader definition than just belief in a supernatural being.
1: It absolutely does. Therefore, let's look at the second definition given by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It says that a religion is, quote, a personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices, unquote. And the fourth definition given is, quote, A cause, principle, or system of beliefs held to with ardor and faith. I would argue, based on these definitions, that materialism, as expressed in Marxism, is a religion. It is a worldview, a system of beliefs, which attempts to explain what is real and provides a basis for making statements about everything. And it is held to with ardor and faith. We've noted
0: before that everyone has a worldview and that our worldview affects how we view everything. It determines which questions we deem appropriate to ask and how we evaluate and internalize every experience or thought that
1: we encounter. Exactly. And every worldview says something about the existence of God as well. Materialism, of course, simply denies that there is such a being as God. For all practical purposes, that is a religion. Most materialists don't go to some kind of special building like a church on a regular basis, but in every other meaningful way, it is a religion. Now, most materialists, like most professing Christians, aren't all that zealous about it, but those who are fervent believers in materialism can be very zealous indeed. As
0: anyone who has ever had an encounter with a committed member of the Campus Atheist Club knows, All right, even if our listeners don't agree with this definition, they at least know what definition you're using. So let's go on to see the point you want to make about Marxist ideology.
1: Well, as we've noted before, any worldview must try to explain where we come from, what is wrong with the world, and how we can fix what is wrong. In Christian terms, those three things are creation, fall, and redemption. And as we pointed out in session 163, Marxism essentially denies the idea of creation. Either the universe popped into existence out of nothing, or it has always been here, but it was not created. The material universe, or multiverse, simply exists. With regard to the fall, Marxism views the creation of private property as the problem, rather than sin, and it views the solution, or redemption, as consisting in a progression from capitalism to socialism to communism and finally to the government simply withering away because, as Marx and Engels wrote in the Communist Manifesto, quote, "...political power, properly so called, is merely the organized power of one class for oppressing another." Therefore, in their view, when all the classes have dissolved, so will organized political power. At that point, mankind will supposedly have arrived at utopia." I'm tempted to say nirvana, but that would be mixing religions.
0: Although there are some interesting parallels between the Buddhist view of nirvana and the Marxist view of utopia, they both view the individual as somehow getting lost, if you will, in a collective identity. It never ceases to amaze me how naive it is to believe that human beings will arrive at this utopian vision without a fundamental change in
1: character. It's only surprising if you understand that all men are sinners by nature, which is part of the Christian worldview. But if you start with a materialist worldview and deny the universal existence of sin, then I suppose it becomes more believable, although I think you have to constantly ignore a mountain of evidence that daily argues against your worldview, both evidence from without and from within. But given their materialist view of man, Marxists believe that they can create a new man by proper indoctrination. According to their view, we are, after all, only automatons, and we can, therefore, be reprogrammed.
0: Well, Believing that requires more faith than I possess, and giving anyone enough power to do that is extremely dangerous.
1: I agree completely. But if someone is a true believer in Marxist ideology, this materialist view of man is a foundational principle. And we certainly don't criticize Marxists or anyone else for wanting to make this world a better place. Most, if not all, people desire this world to be a better place than it currently is. Therefore, if you are a zealous Marxist, you're going to devote your life to trying to achieve heaven on earth. You may well think it won't happen in your lifetime, but it is nonetheless a compelling motivation and you will dedicate your life to it. The problem is that it will never work because your worldview is wrong.
0: Yeah, that makes good sense. And I remember from our last session that Whitaker Chambers spoke about devoting your life to a cause. He wrote that, quote, Communists are that part of mankind which has recovered the power to live or die,
1: to bear witness for its faith. He did write that. He also wrote that, quote, The revolutionary heart of communism is a simple statement of Karl Marx, further simplified for handy use. Philosophers have explained to the world it is necessary to change the world unquote. and given that statement, I want to read a statement made by Angela Davis in an interview that was just published last month in a special edition of Vanity Fair. She said about her life's work quote, "We do this work because we want to change the world." I don't know if
0: she was consciously quoting Marx, but that's perfect but I suspect that our younger listeners in particular may not know who Angela Davis is, so perhaps it'd be good to provide some background.
1: I agree, and I chose that quote from her not just because it was so perfect and timely, but also because Angela Davis will come up again soon. She's a perfect example of how and why Marxist ideology has become so prevalent in our society today. Angela Davis retired from being a professor and the director of the Feminist Studies Program at the University of California in Santa Cruz in 2008. She was a member of the Communist Party in the United States until 1991, when she was expelled from the party for opposing the coup against Gorbachev. Certainly those of us who are old enough and lived in California in 1970
0: also remember that she was charged with murder in the Marin County courthouse shootings
1: in 1970. That's true. She purchased the shotgun that was used to kill Superior Court Judge Harold Haley, who had been taken captive along with others, and the other guns used in the case were also registered to her. In all, there were four people killed and two wounded. She was, however, acquitted of all charges due to insufficient evidence. Independent of the fact she was acquitted, though, there was more than enough evidence to make it clear in my mind that she was involved. Not only did she purchase the guns— But the purpose of taking the hostages was to get other prisoners released, including Angela Davis's lover. In addition, she fled and used aliases and disguises to elude authorities for two months. In addition to the Marin County Courthouse shootout, she was also affiliated with the Black Panther Organization, which was responsible for a number of criminal acts, including murders. It does seem strange that such a person
0: should have landed a position as a professor at the University of California.
1: Strange to say the least. She has never made any serious contribution to scholarship of any kind. She is merely famous for her work as a revolutionary and a violent one at that. She has advocated for the abolishment of prisons, and is extremely critical of our legal system, although she certainly profited from our systems bending over backwards, to be fair to the accused. Angela Davis is also not alone, as we will see. There is a large number of former 1960s revolutionaries who have gone on to prominent and influential positions. And as a way of transitioning to that topic, I'd like to look at another interesting comment Davis made in the interview. Now, what's that? She was commenting on the fact that the current COVID-19 pandemic and the George Floyd killing presented an unusual opportunity for the kind of riots we have seen erupt around the country. Uh, She didn't say riots, by the way, that's my word. What she did say was that, quote, the protests offered people an opportunity to join in this collective demand to bring about deep change, radical change, defund the police, abolish policing as we know it, These are the same arguments that we've been making for such a long time about the prison system and the whole criminal justice system. It was as if all these decades of work by so many people who received no credit at all came to fruition. Okay, she talks
0: about decades of work coming to fruition, and she used the plural pronoun we.
1: Uh, What and who is she talking about? She's talking about what has been called the Long March Through the Institutions and there have been a number of people involved. I suspect a number of our listeners have heard that phrase, the
0: Long March, but I doubt that many know exactly where it comes from and what it means.
1: I'm sure you're right about that. The phrase comes from a German Marxist sociologist named Rudy Dutschke. To quote from Roger Kimball's book, The Long March, this phrase, quote, signified in the words of Herbert Marcuse, Working against the established institutions while working in them, unquote. the phrase was meant to harken back to Mao Zedong's Communist Red Army's Long March in 1934 and 35, but that march isn't germane to our topic today, so we aren't going to discuss it. I just point the fact out as an example of the communist thinking and sympathies of these people. Okay, so how did this
0: idea of working against the established institutions while working in them
1: play out? Well, there were a large number of leftists, including Angela Davis, who discovered that the violent tactics of the Black Panthers, the Students for a Democratic Society, the Weathermen, and other groups of 1960s revolutionaries didn't work. They realized that they could bring about radical change to this country by taking over the educational institutions instead. They could then use that platform to indoctrinate young people into their anti-American, anti-Christian, Marxist ideologies. That is why Davis spoke about decades of work by so many people coming to fruition. And it is important to note that she was a student of Herbert Marcuse. Who was Herbert Marcuse? He was, like Dutschke, a German Marxist who studied the philosopher Hegel. Our listeners may remember that Marx was a disciple of Hegel as well. In any event, Marcuse was a part of what is called the Frankfurt School, a group of leftist scholars who developed and promoted a mix of Freud and Marx called critical theory. This group, which contained a lot of secular Jews, fled Nazi Germany before World War II and finally ended up at Columbia University. This idea of theirs, critical theory, is at the heart of much of what is going on in America today. Okay, and what is critical theory? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to go back one step. We need to go back to Europe in the early part of the 20th century. We've briefly mentioned the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, led by Lenin, but there were communist movements in other countries as well. In Germany and Italy, however, these communist movements lost to fascism. Now, we need to remember that true Marxist communism envisions a final utopian condition where there is no need for government, and so it just dissolves away. In other words, true communism is not nationalistic. It thinks of the world as a whole. Fascism, on the other hand, while still being socialist, is strongly nationalistic. Remember that the official name of the Nazi party in Germany was the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Therefore, there was very strong antagonism between the fascists and the communists. Well, that's all interesting history, but what does it have to do with critical theory? Well, there was an Italian communist by the name of Antonio Gramsci who played a very important role. He was born in 1891 in Italy. In 1913, he became an activist in the Italian Socialist Party or PSI. Some of his writings were praised by Lenin and Gramsci eventually left the PSI to help found the Communist Party of Italy. At one point, he even spent two years in Moscow. He became a member of the Italian Parliament, and when his party was outlawed by the fascist Mussolini, Gramsci was arrested and then sent to prison in 1928. He was released in April 1937, only a few days before his death. Uh, How, then, did he become so influential? While he was in prison, he thought about why socialism had been unable to succeed in countries outside of Russia. Remember that we discussed Edward Bernstein in session 166, He had noted the failure of Marx and Engels' ideas in England. The problem was, put simply, that capitalism was successful and a middle class developed that was comfortable and didn't see a need for revolutionary change. But let me quote from Mike Gonzalez's book, The Plot to Change America. He wrote that, quote, Gramsci came up with a useful meta-explanation. The bourgeoisie had acculturated the working man to do his bidding, giving him false consciousness." What does that mean? What is this false consciousness? It means that the workers had accepted what is called the hegemonic narrative. In other words, as Marx had already posited, Gramsci viewed all social institutions and even histories as being constructs by which the ruling class enslaves the workers. So when workers buy into the cultural norms, they are participating in their own subjugation. Let's look at this in terms of what has gone on in this country since the end of World War II. All right, that'd be helpful. At the end of World War II and on up into the early 1960s, when the so-called baby boom generation was born, the average middle-class American accepted as true certain basic principles. For example, that hard work, honesty, being on time, telling the truth, getting married before having children, avoiding substance abuse, and so on, were good things. Gramsci would say, however, that these are all part of the hegemonic narrative, or script, by which the ruling class subjugated the workers.
0: And yet everything you just named could be backed up as being a biblical norm, which Christians are duty-bound to accept and practice.
1: You're right. And that is part of why this whole critical theory idea is irreconcilably anti-Christian. And just in case some of our listeners have been too busy just living their lives as decent, hard-working citizens and are unaware of how much things have changed in the universities and the intellectual centers of our country, let me give just one example. Please do. In 2017, two law professors, Amy Wax of the University of Pennsylvania Law School and Larry Alexander of the University of San Diego School of Law, published an opinion piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer that caused quite a stir. It was entitled, Paying the Price for Breakdown of the Country's Bourgeois Culture. They noted a number of problems plaguing our society, like drug abuse, unemployment, crime, single-parent families, and so on, and they said, quote, The causes of these phenomena are multiple and complex, but implicated in these and other maladies is the breakdown of the country's bourgeois culture. That culture laid out the script we all were supposed to follow. Get married before you have children, and strive to stay married for their sake, Get the education you need for gainful employment. Work hard and avoid idleness. Go the extra mile for your employer or client. Be a patriot ready to serve the country. Be neighborly, civic-minded, and charitable. Avoid coarse language in public. Be respectful of authority. Eschew substance abuse and crime. That doesn't sound very divisive or controversial to me. Well, that's because you, like me, are of a certain age. Okay, that's unnecessarily cruel. (laughs) And you are a Christian, which makes you and me part of the problem in the eyes of those who are on the far left. We are the oppressors who have created this hegemonic narrative or script as a part of our plan for oppressing others. And here I thought it was simply God's word
0: regarding how we are to live lives that give Him glory and lead to the most joy and peace here on earth. And that has been around without change for
1: 2,000 years. And you're right in that view. But, and this was a big eye-opener for me when I first read about this article, it generated an amazingly harsh backlash. For example, the dean of the Penn Law School, Ted Ruger, published an op-ed in the student newspaper which suggested that Professor Wax's views were divisive, even noxious, and half of her law school faculty colleagues signed an open letter denouncing her piece. There was a similarly harsh response at the University of San Diego, even though it's a Catholic university. The dean of the law school, Stephen Ferulo, put out a memo repudiating the piece,
0: That is simply incredible. One wonders what these people think good values are. Lying?
1: Being lazy? Getting drunk? It does make you wonder. And Professors Wax and Alexander were careful to state that they were not claiming that things were perfect back in the 1950s. They recognized that many problems and hypocrisy existed. They were simply making the case, which is absolutely forbidden in academic and intellectual circles today, that these biblical values are good and proper and lead to better outcomes for everyone in society. So, Gramsci
0: decided that the culture itself was somehow oppressive and had to be changed, and
1: that has led to the harsh reception this opinion piece received. Exactly. To quote Gonzalez again, quote, "...the cure, Gramsci thought, was to carry out a quote-unquote consciousness-raising, indoctrination campaign," that would convince the proletariat of his having been duped by tradition, religion, the family, the education system, and all the cultural trappings of society, And that idea has led to the organized efforts we are seeing now to destroy our culture and our country. It is the result of the long march through the institutions and is part of what real believers on the far left view as a necessary revolution on the way to establishing heaven on earth. Well,
0: I very much look forward to continuing this discussion, but we're out of time, so I'd like to remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to info at org. We'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say, brought to you by Grace and Glory Media, and I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine the far left's war on our culture, and we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Reverend P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center.